Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, September 17th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, The Future of Transit, by Michael Crum. The Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority is seeking public input on proposals for its future as the agency considers how it can best serve the community and its evolving needs. The business record sat down recently with Luis Montoya, the chief planning officer for the agency that serves 11 member communities and Polk County, and Chief External Affairs Officer Aaron Hockman to learn more about the proposals and what DART has planned as it reaches out to engage with the community about the proposals. What's important to consider is who rides DART, the reasons they ride DART, where the busiest routes are, where more service may be needed, and areas where the agency can possibly transition to alternative, more cost-effective methods of providing service. The numbers. DART had a daily ridership before the pandemic of nearly 15,000, with annual ridership of about 4.4 million. While the numbers dropped off in the early months of the pandemic, they have begun to recover. 37% of DART riders are 34 years old or under. 42% don't own a working vehicle. 58% have an annual household income of less than $25,000. 61% of DART riders are white, while 27% are black, indicating a dispro disproportionate number of black residents ride DART compared to their population in the state, which is 4.1% in 2021. 43% of DART riders use the bus to go to work, while 16% use it for health and medical reasons, and 13% ride DART to shop. According to data provided by DART, two-thirds of its riders are on its nine most frequent and productive routes, and shuttle and express routes have lost ridership in the past decade. Work to develop the proposals began in early 2020, but was put on hold in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. It resumed earlier this year, and an early round of public input was conducted last spring. Now recommendations have been developed and will be shared with the public. A final report is expected to be finalized in November, with it going to the DART Commission for approval in December. Adapting to Change As part of the analysis, DART officials are evaluating which routes are the most productive and which routes are the least productive. When we think about where we want to make adjustments, we actually look at the performance of each individual route and do we need to provide more or less service because it's not being efficient at the current level of service, Montoya said. A big challenge is the continued trend of, a, of development away from the city's center and toward the suburbs. Montoya said areas that are developed outside of existing bus routes are more difficult and expensive to serve. The growth is expected to continue in our region, and it's hard not only for DART to have really long bus lines that go out and serve the edge of a growing community, but as we look at the travel patterns, 
people don't just travel in straight lines. Increasingly, they are dispersed all over the place, he said. Hockman said DART's model has evolved since the agency was first developed. It was initially developed to bring commuters to downtown, where a lot of the area's biggest employers are. But it has evolved as the community has grown, she said. While we have continued to adjust and tweak the service, it was really developed as a hub and spoke system. So there was a lot of service coming in and out of downtown, Hockman said. That change is really at the hub of the agency's pursuit of changes to better and more efficiently serve the region, which is continually evolving and as people's work patterns and lifestyles change. Some of the changes contained in the proposal include using small microtransit vehicles more frequently to better meet the needs of riders in a certain area. In some cases, DART may contract with a ride service, such as Uber or Lyft, to pick up a rider and deliver them to a hub where they can get on a bus to take them to their destination. Things like bike share and scooter programs could also be considered to improve access to transit, Montoya said. The recommendations include near-term service proposals, that would address underperforming bus routes and repurpose resources to improve service to customers within a cost-neutral framework. One example is a pilot project in Ankeny, which takes the Ankeny on-call service, which operates limited hours five days a week, and requires a rider to schedule it a day ahead of time. Under the proposal, its hours would be expanded and it would operate like Uber or Lyft, where someone would call and a DART driver in a smaller DART vehicle would be dispatched to pick up that rider. We see that as really being a game changer in making it more convenient for people to ride in that they don't have to book it a day ahead of time, but then also be able to expand those hours that people can rely on to get to work, Montoya said. Expanding the hours would also open opportunities for riders to connect with other routes to get elsewhere in the metro, he said. A similar model is proposed in West Des Moines, along University Avenue and 60th Street to Jordan Creek Parkway. The whole other area where we have much less ridership, we think could be better served by that microtransit, so where people have the flexibility, they don't have to come out on a set time and set schedule. They could schedule those trips ahead of time if they wanted to, but they could also schedule in real time and have a bus take them anywhere within the zone, Montoya said. Another alternative service model builds off a pilot that was done in 2019 called Flex Connect. It is a partnership with Uber and Yellow Cab to get people to a bus stop. It would replace Route 74 in West Des Moines, which currently operates as a shuttle from Valley West Mall to business parks and employers in Urbandale. Ridership on that route has waned in recent years, and Montoya said an alternative service model could allow DART to serve those riders more cost-effectively. When you think about that growth that's happening in the urban loop around Interstate 80-35, we really saw an opportunity as much to address the underperforming bus route as to expand service up there, he said. The route currently operates a set schedule in the peak morning and evening hours. But, he said, 
for the same cost, we can offer them an Uber or yellow cab throughout the day, so now they have flexibility. During an earlier pilot, those riders were offered at no cost, but moving forward, the cost would be similar to a bus fare, Montoya said. We do need to work out the details, but it would be subsidized by DART, recognizing it would be more cost-effective than to run a full-size bus with a driver, because you're only running it when people need it, not throughout the day, he said. That model, like the others, would be a cost-neutral operation, Montoya said. Hockman said the proposals show DART's commitment to serve riders in the best, most efficient way possible. This is a good example of where we are demonstrating when there's high ridership, it makes sense to operate and invest in those fixed routes services, where there is a need for travel, but it's not as great or the overall demand, there's other more flexible services that can meet those needs at a different cost, she said. The last near-term proposal addresses routes to Altoona and Bondurant. Route 17 was expanded last year to the new Amazon facility in Bondurant, but only goes along Adventureland Drive to Bondurant four times a day. That would increase under the proposal. We have Route 99 that was declining before the pandemic, so we would use resources from Route 99 and extend more trips on Route 17 to have it run every hour on that piece from Altoona to Bondurant, Montoya said. We would be repurposing it from an area that is underutilized to an area we think has a lot of promise. Long-term goals would be continuing and expanding mobile on demand and microtransit services, improving weekend services, and identifying crosstown routes that connect high activity areas and don't come downtown. Reducing travel times and wait times are also on the long-term list of proposed improvements. What do you think? All details of the proposals will be included in an interactive website which went live recently at www.ridedart.com forward slash future. There will also be public meetings, open houses, community events, ride-alongs, and focus groups over the next couple of months to get public input. Hockman said the overall goal is to ensure that everyone in the region has access to transit services. As we think about all the issues the region is tackling as we grow, growth in jobs, getting people to work, equity, it's important to make sure our region is accessible and a place where people want to live and they can get around, she said. Transit isn't what people may have thought of anymore because of technology and the way it's changing. There's a lot of different ways to meet mobility needs that fit that demand. There's a lot of innovative ways to meet the needs of the region, she said. In the feature story this week, Answers to driver shortages found in expanded recruitment, regulatory change by Michael Crum. The trucking industry is facing driver shortages that are expected to grow to being more than 1 million drivers short in the next decade if it doesn't do more to improve recruiting and working conditions, industry leaders say. According to the American Trucking Association, 
The industry is currently facing a shortage of more than 60,000 drivers, a problem exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic and an increased number of early retirements of drivers looking to make a change. But the challenge is nothing new for the industry, which carries more than 72% of the country's freight, according to the American Trucking Association. We have frankly played chicken little with a driver shortage, and for several years there were ebbs and flows and geographic hotspots that had difficulty finding people, said Dan Van Alstine, President and Chief Operating Officer at Des Moines-based Ruan Transportation Management Systems. An undercurrent to the issue is the increasing age of drivers, said Van Alstine, who also serves as vice chair of the National Industry Group. We face, as an industry, a very aging driver population. The average age of a truck driver is 57 years old, Van Alstine said. The driver shortage has been with us for some time, and I think both the demographic influence and the significant impact of the pandemic has truly elevated this to a crisis, he said. The industry is also facing shortages in maintenance and warehouse employees, but the driving shortage is most critical, Van Alstine said. Technicians are a challenge, warehouse workers are a challenge, but those, while difficult, they're just not the number in the needs that we have in the truck driving fleet, he said. Van Alstine declined to discuss how many openings Ruan has for drivers, but the, said the company has about 4,600 drivers nationwide. Brenda Neville, president and CEO of the Iowa Motor Truck Association, said the escalation in early retirements in the past couple of years caught the industry by surprise. We saw a much larger number of drivers over the age of 60 during COVID that retired than we anticipated, she said. Some of the drivers said, I put in my 20 years or 30 years. I'm just going to tap out. And they can leave the long haul trucking jobs and find another driving job fairly easily, Neville said. They can leave these big truckload long haul jobs and with the agricultural base we have in Iowa, they can still do seasonal work hauling grain, doing any number of things and not have that fear factor that some of them had when they were traveling across the country, she said. How does the trucking industry turn around the trend of increased openings for drivers? which in some sectors of the industry has led to supply chain disruptions as products sit in warehouses waiting to be delivered? One is to bring new people into the industry. Second is to push through regulatory change that can open the doors to more drivers at a younger age, experts said. The challenge we have is getting people interested in coming in to be a truck driver, Van Alstine said. Unfortunately, it's the reality as a parent, it wasn't probably a conversation you had with a child, saying it would be a great profession to get into is be a dr truck driver. A lot of folks don't see truck driving as what they can do for their profession, he said. Neville said the industry needs to step up its recruiting efforts, but needs to make changes to retain the drivers it has. Companies also are targeting spouses and families in those efforts, she said. They're really sensitive to what the drivers need, their quality of life, Neville said. Companies are hiring counselors to talk to drivers more, to talk to their spouses more. There's a whole lot of things being tested and implemented. 
Obviously, everywhere you look, you're seeing sign-on bonuses of fifteen dollars to $20,000 over a six to eight month period. It's amazing what we're seeing in the industry, she said. The shortages, which traditionally affected primarily the interstate carriers, have expanded to the smaller carriers, she said. In the last six months, I'm hearing from every imaginable kind of delivery operation, Neville said. Beer haulers, they can't find drivers. The local delivery trucks that were typically the first jobs to be filled, they too are now reporting some real struggles getting drivers. It's really become across the board. But at the end of the day, companies end up just swapping drivers, she said. It's one company stealing a driver from another company, Neville said. We still need to look at getting newer and younger drivers into the industry. Federal law currently prohibits anyone 21 and under from driving a truck across state lines, which Van Alstine says limits the ability of the industry to bring in people right out of high school to be trained. A bill in Congress called the Drive Safe Act would create an internship program for drivers between 18 and 21 years old, which Van Alstine said might attract high school graduates who don't want to go on to college. What we want as an industry is to tap into that high school senior or that high school junior and create a path where they can have a very proud and profitable career in trucking, he said. But today's laws prohibit 21-year-olds from driving on an interstate basis. In the current infrastructure bill in Congress, a pilot would be created for the Drive Safe Act that contains provisions, such as companies would be required to have a full suite of safety technologies in the truck, a training program, a co-driver program, and more. We are focused on getting the right people in the industry, but preparing them in a very safe way, Van Alstine said. Neville said the law is needed to get more young people into the driver's seat. We're missing that pipeline of young drivers that are very interested in the industry, but they aren't interested in driving just in the state of Iowa, she said. The bill gained momentum under the Trump administration and continues to move forward under the Biden administration, Neville said. It's really a model that is patterned after the steam fitters or the electricians, where you are an apprentice for so many years, you drive so many miles with the coach with you, she said. Not all companies support the bill, though. There are some trucking companies here in Iowa that say even if that law passes, they're not going to put an 18-year-old behind the wheel of a truck, Neville said. Another path to tapping into younger drivers is promoting training programs where after six or eight months they can begin driving and begin making good money, she said. Some companies already have agreements with community colleges where they pay for the training of a new employee, Neville said and she expects those opportunities to grow as companies look to increase hiring and attract new people to the industry. Depending on the job, the type of truck driven, and the route, a starting driver can make $45,000 or more a year. With experience and long haul routes, a driver can make up to $100,000 or more, Neville said. The industry also needs to attract more applicants of color and more women applicants to help fill that growing gap in drivers, Neville and Van Alstine said. 
We as an industry do not source well in urban areas, Van Alstine said. That's a market that we have to learn how to get better at and get into those urban environments. That is a pretty sizable part of our society that we traditionally have not been able to attract. Our sourcing behaviors and tactics are going to have to change. We're going to have to go to different markets, go to different areas than we have historically sourced people from, he said. He said big sign-on bonuses offered by some companies haven't attracted new workers who are more interested in other factors, such as fair treatment, a schedule that better fits their lifestyle, and competitive pay. That work-life balance, having predictability in their work life, is critically important, Van Alstine said. The pay is almost secondary to, can I get home to see my son's baseball game? Can I tell my wife I'll be home for our anniversary? Can I tell my wife I can pick the kids up at this time? Those are the kinds of scheduling components as an industry that we're just going to have to find a better way, he said. And that could come at a cost. We have such great productivity in our logistic channels across the country, but we now face a time when we may have to give up productivity to ensure that we have the people to do the work. Van Alstine said, it may not be suitable to say we have to have everything right now. So that's going to be a challenge in our society on the horizon. The shortage of drivers means more drivers putting in extra hours, which can create frustrations and result in more people leaving the industry, he said. If your work week is 50 hours and your boss comes to you and says you need to work 60 hours this week, you'd say, okay, I get it. But if that becomes every single week, at some point that's going to cross a line and folks are going to get frustrated. And I do believe it leads to people saying, if this is their work environment, I don't want to do this anymore and I'll find somewhere else to work, Van Alstine said. During the pandemic, Ruan didn't have to lay off drivers, instead diverting them from customers who may have shut down or reduced operations to those with increased demand such as grocery stores, hospitals, and retail, he said. The company did do some short-term furloughs in some non-driving positions, Van Alstine said. One of the reasons the company has fared better than maybe some others is because of its diverse customer portfolio, he said. Companies with a more narrow focus, such as hauling fuel or steel, struggled more, Van Alstine said. Van Alstine and Neville both say they are optimistic about the future despite the current challenges the industry is facing. The awareness is there, the conversations are there, and the ideas are emerging, Neville said. I think when all of that stuff is happening, good things will follow. That level of awareness is much higher than it's ever been, and we're actually having conversations about what we can do to improve and they're looking at a lot of different things that will impact the industry as well as the quality of life of truck drivers. And I think these are all really valuable conversations, she said. Van Alstine agreed, saying he's confident the industry will find a path forward. I have a strong belief that we're going to be creative and innovative in how and where we source people, he said. I can't think that we're not going to do something I can't think we're going to do the same things, so I'm confident we're going to find some creative ways and innovative ways to make the changes we need to make.
from the Business Records Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. Five takeaways from our power breakfast on the future of corporate culture. By Business Records staff. The ongoing need for more talent and strategies to welcome, include, and retain a diverse workforce have been top concerns for business leaders in recent years. Then a pandemic, remote working, and a national racial reckoning disrupted workplace culture even more. At the September 9th Power Breakfast, we talked about the future of corporate culture as it relates to all of these challenges and opportunities. Panelists included Katie Graham, attorney and shareholder, Nymaster Good PC. Claudia Shabel, president and CEO, Shabel Solutions. Emily Forrester, vice president of human resources at Workiva. Sharon Gaddy Hanna, vice president of human resources and employee relations officer at Bankers Trust Company. Gilmara Vila Nova Mitchell, director of DEI at IMT Insurance and leadership consultant with Sarah Noel Wilson Incorporated, and Troy Vincent, founder and CEO at Navigate Wellbeing Solutions. Here's what our reporters took away. Emily Blobaum. An overarching theme that all of the panelists touch on was the need to know who you're working with, not just what they do at work, but who they are after they shut down the computer for the day. Doing this will foster empathy, understanding, and a sense of belonging. Gilmara Villanova Mitchell noted that throughout the era of remote work and Zoom meetings, we've been invited into people's homes and can see how they decorate their rooms and what their kids or pets look like. Elevate those moments so we can get to know each other better as human beings, she said. On the other hand, though, Recognize that some people may not want you to see their personal lives, said Claudia Schabel of Schabel Solutions. Know how your employees prefer to be recognized. Know what they need to be successful, happy, and healthy. It's important that leaders take the initiative to get to know the people you work with, she said. Joe Gardiaz. As the panelists discussed ways in which remote and hybrid work have affected company culture, IMT's Villa Nova Mitchell said that she makes a point to think about ways to continue employee recognition programs. It's easy to forget when we're not present, she said. That is something that I have been trying to be intentional about. Asked if employers have raised expectations over time to discourage occasional family interruptions, Villa Nova Mitchell said that she hopes that's not the case. From my perspective, I hope that grace doesn't go away. And if we all go back to the office, which I don't think we will, I hope we will still find ways to recognize this, she said. Sharon Gaddy Hanna from Bankers Trust noted that managers should clearly communicate their expectations for remote or hybrid workers. For instance, is it clear to employees when it's acceptable to have their cameras off during a meeting? or when they need to be in a private setting without family. We can set these expectations within ourselves and never tell people what they are, she said. That will not allow people to be successful. Michael Crum. 
A theme that was carried over through the conversation was making workplace culture part of an organization's overall strategy. Vincent of Navigate Wellbeing Solutions said the number one thing he's seeing is that employees want to be valued by their organization. They want that sense of belonging and they want folks to understand that work-life balance is going on, he said. They want to align their purpose with the purpose of the company. Forrester said at Workiva they prefer to call it work-life blend and offer amenities and flexibility suited to that. Vincent said an organization's value system should be evident in all that it does, from well-being programs to communication, inclusion, and equity. All those things build on a strategy of engagement and letting people know that we're building a culture of care for you, he said. We're making it personal. We're helping push your purpose with our purpose as a company, and we're letting people know what we exist as an organization. It's fantastic to see organizations embracing this and making it a full business strategy along with the bottom line of their organization. Kathy A. Bolton Most employers these days are having a difficult time attracting and retaining workers. In addition, Iowa workers often are being lured to larger markets with amenities such as mountains and oceans. Katie Graham of Nymaster Goods said she advises employers to focus on talent, not location. We all have a role to actually expand our hiring pool, she said. More and more employers from the bigger markets are going to start hiring the best talent from Iowa. Many Iowa employers don't need employees at the workplace every day, which allows regional searches for talent to be conducted rather than citywide searches, Graham said. By expanding hiring pools, employers can focus on diversity efforts. There's no more one-size-fits-all approach, she said. Graham cautioned that if employers hire workers living in other states, the employer needs to be cognizant of the state's employment, pay, and tax laws. Sarah Bogards Several panelists noted that they are seeing companies lean toward hybrid models, changing the opportunities available to employees who want more flexibility, but also employees with disabilities. Graham said before the pandemic, companies she consulted with were apprehensive when they received requests from employees asking to work from home as an accommodation for a disability. At that time, employers were looking at that request to work from home 100% and saying, there's no way we can do this. That's gone. Most employers now have had people working from home in a hybrid situation, so it's going to be really hard now to say it's an undue burden for us to accommodate your disability, Graham said. And as the panelists discussed, it's important for employees working from home for any reason to feel engaged in the workplace culture and valued by their leadership and colleagues. You're listening to the Business Record for Friday, September 17th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Our next article is an Innovation Q&A with Todd Crone, CEO of Power Pollen, written by Kate Hayden. 
What would agriculture look like if producers had direct control over the pollination timing of their crops? In 2015, ag tech startup Power Pollen, co-founders Todd Crone and Jason Cope, began experimenting in Crone's garage with corn pollen preservation and application methods. Six years later, Ankeny-based Power Pollen has patented its preservation and application technology and markets directly to seed producers in the agricultural industry. Crone, now CEO of Power Pollen, shared his observations on growth, opportunities, and challenges while leading the company with Cope, Chief Intellectual Property Officer. Power Pollen's mission is to make agriculture more sustainable. We're starting with the seed industry and will soon be coming to the corn grain industry and to farmers, Crone said. We're continuing to meet the challenge that's before us. How do you describe power pollen to others? Power Pollen is a biotech company that has a technology for pollen preservation, corn in particular. When you can preserve corn pollen, which really hasn't been done in the history of agriculture, you can control reproduction. When you can control reproduction, you can improve the seed production process and make it much more efficient. You can make hybrids or products that seed companies couldn't make before. So it enables not only a more efficient process, but an innovative process that creates products that didn't exist. How do you define innovation for yourself? I would define it as translating new information into something that has value and never existed before. There's a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. The concept is not just improving something, it is making something that didn't exist before. The concept is going into a truly new space where you're changing the paradigm. PayPal is an example of this, where all of a sudden people could control getting their money to each other, not going through the old channels. In our case, our zero to one invention is being able to make products for a seed company that they couldn't make before. The current system of making hybrids is about 100 years old and it has limitations. There's certain products it can't make and those it does are fairly expensive to make. We can make them less expensive and enable new products. What are the opportunities for growth that you see in the bioscience and ag tech industries right now? Farmers have always had to be sustainable or they couldn't stay in business. They had to conserve their slope. They were sustainable and controlled erosions, erosion in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. There's a lot of good stories there. But there's an opportunity now to become even more sustainable, to be even more carbon neutral, and to get even better about that. The example I use is land use, to get more per acre for the same inputs than we've gotten in the past. Our value proposition and opportunity with the seed industry is to have a better sustainability picture per acre for land use, for seed production. What are some of the challenges facing the bioscience and ag tech industries in Iowa? The key to growth and advancements in ag tech and biotech is related to startups and the innovation that comes with those startups. 
The challenge for Iowa is a better startup ecosystem and environment. That could go for really any state outside of the coasts. Developing a better startup ecosystem with better availability to capital in Iowa will be important for the future of this startup ecosystem and the success of ag tech and biotech. There are many programs we've taken advantage of in the state of Iowa, and there is a great network here and availability to investors that we've taken advantage of. We feel that we've had a lot of success here, but that ecosystem can improve. What are some initiatives Power Pollen is looking at right now that you're excited about? We're excited about that next market. We're currently commercialized in the seed market, meaning that the seed company is the customer. The next market is the farmer as the customer. We're really starting to translate the current technology into how it would work for the farmer. We're excited to see that come to fruition. We've got an important demonstration this summer to show how that would work, how we could bring both higher yield and higher value grain to the farmer by adding a higher value trait to the system. This initiative that we're just starting to demonstrate would likely be commercial in 2024, and then to really get to the ideal vision and continue to improve it, it would likely be within the course of the next five years after that. How does your leadership team at Power Pollen make thoughtful company decisions in times of great uncertainty? It's not just the pandemic that brought uncertainty, it's the pace of technology that brings uncertainty. You cannot make decisions with certainty in this environment and you have to always be ready to pivot and adjust when you get more information. That's what our leadership team does. If it doesn't cost you anything, Delaying a decision is fine. Make decisions when you have more information. If you have to make a decision, be ready to pivot and be able to reverse direction. Know exactly how you'll do that. What pressing global challenge could Iowa technology companies play a key role in? The most pressing global challenge that Iowa companies can play a role in, particularly biotech and ag tech, is the dual need to produce more food and do it in environmentally sound ways. It can be done. The other piece of that is to do it in an economically feasible way, and there are ways to do that. It's probably the most pressing issue for the globe right now. Not only how to feed 10 billion people by 2050, but how to do it in a sustainable way. I think Iowa's in a great place to do that with the companies that are building here. Next, the On Leadership column by Susan DeBaca, President and Group Publisher, BPC. The success of Iowa's economy tied to the Latino community. When my new Mexican father came to Iowa in the early 1960s to join the faculty at Iowa State University, the Latino population in our state was sparse and often misunderstood. My father was also often misunderstood. Many Iowans did not even know New Mexico was part of the United States, and few had any understanding or appreciation of Hispanic culture beyond movie stereotypes. Today, Latinos, which refers to a person's culture or origin regardless of race, 
and is alternatively called Hispanic or the more recent term Latinx, are Iowa's largest racial or ethnic minority group and one of the fastest growing populations. Just as my father moved here for his academic career, Latinos have come to Iowa for a variety of reasons and many have stayed for generations. Latinos have lived and worked in Iowa since the 19th century, playing an important role in shaping the state's economy, culture, and communities. With a declining population overall and need for a vibrant workforce in Iowa, Hispanics will increasingly have a large part in our state's economy. As a report from the recent White House Hispanic Community Action Summit stated, quote, Given the role that Hispanics will increasingly play in our labor force, in our economy, and in our public education system, it is undeniable that the success of our nation is inextricably tied to the success of the Hispanic community." End quote. The same is true here in Iowa, but despite our long history here, Latinos have not been particularly visible. That's why Hispanic Heritage Month which is observed from September 15th to October 15th, is vital to recognizing and celebrating the culture and traditions of U.S. residents who trace their roots to Spain, Mexico, and the Spanish-speaking nations of Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. In observance of Hispanic Heritage Month, I asked local Latino leaders, why is it so important to the future of Iowa to support and advance leaders from diverse cultures and from Hispanic cultures in particular? Marta Codina, Region Bank President at Midwest Central Region of Wells Fargo Bank, said, We are the fastest growing segment of the population in the country. We bring a mix of cultures that only enriches our communities. It's important to have representation in leadership so this growing population sees their potential. If you can see it, you can dream it. Joe Gonzalez, Executive Director of Latino Resources, Inc. Latinos are a fast-growing segment of the population. We offer talent and another voice, a voice that is growing but lacking when it comes to representation in leadership positions. When Latinos see Latinos in power, they envision something more for themselves. We don't want Latinos to settle for less. We want to nurture and mentor standouts in our community. Tar Masias, president of Ola, Iowa, said, The latest census numbers tell us that there are now over 215,000 Latinos living in the state of Iowa. We are the largest minority in the state, yet we are not seen by the mainstream media and corporate America. We are the, quote, invisible minority. That is why we need to uplift our young Latino talent. Sonia Paris Conrad, attorney at law in the law offices of Sonia Paris PLLC. Research shows a positive link between diversity and an organization's performance. Supporting diverse perspectives, including those of Hispanic cultures, especially in the leadership ranks, helps attract talent and promote job satisfaction. As a result, organizations gain the powerful perspective of leaders whose culture and values are deeply and powerfully connected to the American dream. 
and Manny Toribio, business development lead with McClure, said, Iowa's future depends on having diverse decision makers in leadership roles. Having these individuals in place will provide a wide variety of perspectives and critical thinking to solve future problems. The Latino community in Iowa has expanded significantly since my father arrived, and hopefully understanding and appreciation of this rapidly growing and important community will continue to advance. As Paris Conrad says, quote, the world is getting smaller, but we can grow bigger and have a stronger presence because of the commitment of Hispanic leaders to Iowa, end quote. Ways to advance Latino leadership in your organization. Commit to DEI. Toribio points out that inclusion does not happen without concentrated efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and having, quote, those uncomfortable conversations about why we are different, end quote. Gonzalez echoes this, saying, quote, one size fits all does not work, even in a majority white workplace. You have to create a genuinely personal and welcoming work environment." End quote. Uplift your Latino employees. Be intentional, says Macias, pointing out that the average age of Latinos in the state of Iowa is 24, compared to 39 for the rest of the population in Iowa, a 15-year gap that deserves attention. He advises leaders to promote Latinos in positions of visibility and to include them in the decision-making process. Says Paris, quote, hire, develop, empower, and prepare to be amazed, end quote. And create connections. We are a community-minded group. We like to connect and share our various diverse cultures, says Codina, sharing that employee resource networks are a successful way for Latinos to connect as well as empower growth and development. Celebrate Latino culture at the Iowa Latino Heritage Festival. This year's Iowa Latino Heritage Festival, Living La Fiesta, will be held from 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. September 25th and from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. September 26th in Western Gateway Park at 1330 Grand Avenue in downtown Des Moines. Attendees can taste Latino American foods and experience a variety of entertainment from martial arts performers to folkloric dancers and displays about the history of Latin American cultures. There will be musical entertainment both days as well as cooking demonstrations of Latino meals. Free parking is available in the nationwide ramp at 1100 Walnut Street. Cost to attend the festival is $5 for adults. Children 12 and younger are free. For more information, visit www.latinoheritagefestival.org. Next, the Business Records Leader Spotlight. Vaughn named business director at Tippy's Vaughn Institute. Terry Vaughn, a longtime leader in Iowa's insurance community, has been named the professional director of the Vaughn Institute of Risk Management at the University of Iowa's Tippy College of Business effective September 1st. 
Hy-V adds medical director to leadership team. Dr. Daniel Fick has joined Hy-V Inc.'s leadership team as chief medical officer. Barr, Des Moines' civil human rights director, leaving post. Joshua Barr, the city of Des Moines' civil and human rights director, is stepping down from the position that he has held for the past six years. Carmichael retiring from Home, Inc., successor named. Pam Carmichael is retiring as executive director of Home, Inc., the oldest private nonprofit housing organization in Des Moines. Carmichael will be succeeded by Tony Montgomery, who most recently worked for the Federal Home Loan Bank of Des Moines as its senior vice president and director of community investment. Three women ascend to key leadership roles at Holmes Murphy. Waukee-based insurance brokerage Holmes Murphy announced that it has promoted three of its female leaders into key leadership roles in the firm. Effective July 1st, Ellen Willidson, the company's chief financial officer for the past 10 years, was named the firm's first chief innovation officer. Lindsay Chase will assume the role of CFO for Holmes Murphy, and Susan Hatton will assume the role of Holmes Murphy's chief marketing officer. Now Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Iowa's Bad Water. When I think about how farm field runoff is polluting Iowa water systems, I picture someone using tissue paper to try to stop an overflowing toilet. That's because tissue paper can no more hold back the force of an overflowing toilet than Iowans can solve our growing water problems without addressing the issue of farm field runoff. Problems associated with fertilizer runoff have been well known for a long time. As far back as the 1950s, commercial fishers began noticing a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. All plants and animals in an area south of where the Mississippi River empties into the ocean died. Oxygen levels in the water were so low they could not support aquatic life. By the 1970s, scientists had figured out what was causing the dead zone. It was created and fueled in large part by the increased use of nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers on farms in the Mississippi River Basin, which includes all of Iowa. After World War II, commercial fertilizers were hailed as magic potions that increased output on land that would otherwise be less productive. As ever-increasing amounts of fertilizer were applied to the land, seasonal rains washed ever-larger amounts of excess nitrates and phosphorus into streams and lakes. Those waterways emptied into the Mississippi River, which became a superhighway carrying boatloads of fertilizer runoff into the Gulf of Mexico, where it slowly suffocated the ocean's plant and animal life. Eventually, the problem spread. A 2008 study found 405 dead zones along coastlines around the world, and that does not include inland lakes and rivers, which are now also being suffocated. In Iowa, no swim warnings at popular state parks and lakes are all too common today. Although the sources of most of Iowa's water quality problems are well known, 
runoff of commercial fertilizers from farm fields, and manure from confined animal feeding operations, it is only in more recent years that we've begun to understand how insidious the problem is. Throughout history, farmers believed that regular tilling of soil effectively broke it up, allowing farm fields to hold more water and effectively slow down flooding during periods of heavy rain. That is no longer the case. Fertilizers and other chemicals applied to farm fields compact the soil. Plus, they are harmful to many of the microscopic forms of life that live in the soil and help it breathe and hold moisture. The result today is that when rain falls on a farm field, instead of gradually soaking into the soil and revitalizing it, the water can cause the dirt to clump together and form cakes that prevent penetration. Rather than soaking into the soil, rain now pools on top and runs off more quickly into streams and rivers, increasing flood potential and accelerating the process of carrying away the nutrients and other chemicals that farmers apply to the soil in hopes of producing more bountiful crops. The solution to runoff problems is not rocket science. As I noted, the two main causes of dead zone growth are runoff of fertilizer from farm fields and manure from contained animal feeding operations. Better manure containment is one solution. More effective fertilizer application and containment is the other. But Iowans lack the will to do what's needed. We need to rethink agriculture and move away from our current two crop commodity model. That requires repositioning government incentives to minimize financial damage while creating more sustainable models. Meanwhile, water problems are moving from dead zones in the oceans and unswimmable lakes into groundwater supplies. The nonprofit Environmental Working Group recently released a water atlas that reveals phosphorus water pollution in four upper Mississippi River Basin states, including Iowa that shows increasing groundwater pollution. Two of those states, Minnesota and Wisconsin, have established standards to measure phosphorus pollution, but not Iowa. In Iowa, we still think we can plug our overflowing toilet with tissue paper. The business record calendar for the week ahead from Sunday to Tuesday, September 19th to the 21st, the IBA Convention, hosted by the Iowa Bankers Association. This unparalleled event routinely draws over 800 attendees to enjoy unmatched networking opportunities, valuable educational sessions, and insights from industry leaders regarding the significant issues of our time. It's held at Veterans Memorial Convention Center. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, September 17th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. Events Center.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. It may surprise you to know that the garbage that leaves your house will be preserved for centuries in a landfill. More than a dump, landfills are an engineered storage system. On the bottom, there's a thick plastic membrane and a layer of compacted clay to keep liquids from entering the groundwater. Above that, the fill area is divided into cells for each day's garbage. As trucks dump garbage into the cell, it's compacted to become as small as possible. At the end of the day, the cell is closed off with a layer of soil and perhaps another layer of plastic, making it water and airtight. Most garbage won't break down in this environment, though anaerobic bacteria will digest food and organic waste and produce methane, also known as natural gas, the same kind you burn in your stove. Because it's flammable, the methane has to be flared off, or it can be collected and sold for industrial use, or used to run electric generators at the landfill. America leads the world by a wide margin in garbage production, with more than 1,400 pounds per person per year. More than half of it ends up in landfills. And 65% of that is packaging. Cardboard, paper, plastic, bottles and cans, nearly all of which could have been recycled. On average, recycling costs about half as much as storing garbage in a landfill. So if you'd like to reduce your garbage footprint and your city's municipal waste cost, recycling is the way to go. I'm Scott Tinker, filling you with fun facts on Earth Day. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.